0: Welcome to Steelcast, Tata Steel UK's podcast about all things related to steel. Our processes, our products, our customers, our people and our communities. In the past, we've spoken to leaders across the UK about how they've managed their way through Covid pandemic, keeping our employees safe and our customers satisfied. We then went on to host three series of women in steel, talking to some of the many brilliant women who work in all parts of our industry. My name is Tim Rutter. And in our latest series, I'll be posing some of the difficult questions to industry experts about the challenges that climate change presents to our industry, also to our supply chains and our communities. So we'll be talking about topics such as, what is the impact of steel production on the climate? What are the alternatives to our current technologies? And to what extent is steel part of the solution? But before we dive into what choices our industry might have in making steel, in this first episode, I want to really go back to the basics, because I can't help feeling that many of us have missed the first few chapters in the decarbonisation story. Which is why we've named this episode, Don't Mention the C Word, Carbon. To help us get to a base level of understanding of the role of carbon in climate change, I'm delighted to be joined today by Pete Quinn. Pete is Head of Climate Change Policy and Strategy for Tata Steel UK. Pete, very warm welcome to you. Hi Tim. Now, Pete, there might not be a bigger topic in the world at the moment than climate change. Uh, Understanding, obviously, COVID takes up lots of the the, uh, headlines. But, you know, climate change is on the news all of the time. We've recently had COP26 in the UK. Uh, And I guess as far as existential global crises go, this is the big one, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say, Tim. It's uh, it's something which we've known about really for. If you look back in the literature, we've we've been talking about it for more than a hundred years, but it's really in the last ten or twenty years that it's really captured public consciousness. Um, and yeah, it's it's up there. We we used to worry a lot in previous generations about other things, nuclear war, um, ice
0: ages, yeah, uh,
1: uh, the ice ages. I think that um, climate change now is generally regarded by governments and by a lot of people as at the top of the list of things to be worried about and to try to address.
0: Yeah, it's a massive one, and like you say, it's on the news every day, and we see the 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 impact of it with uh, you know melting ice caps and and forest fires and uh, record temperatures uh, year on year, and we you know here we are beginning of twenty twenty two and we've just had the warmest New Year's Day on record. so uh, so the evidence is uh, is plentiful and 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 is high on everyone's agenda. But I said before, you know at the beginning of the podcast, before we go into sort of the causes of climate change and the role of industries, energy intensive industries, especially such as ours, I, I kind of want to go back to the basics because I think everyone on society will know about or heard people talk about you know, net zero carbon, uh, you know, CO2. But I wonder if people really understand what it is about carbon that is such a problem, given it's one of the most common elements on Earth. Maybe you could try and explain that, the whole issue with carbon or carbon dioxide, yep. carbon-related gases, and, and explain why they're the same or different to greenhouse gases. Yep. What's the problem with carbon, Pete?
1: OK, good question, Tim. And there's much better experts than me, but I'll I'll explain it, it, it as as I understand it. The term that we use, which is driving climate change is the greenhouse effect. Why is it called that? Because what, what is happening at a global scale across the whole of the world is actually the same process that does take place within our own greenhouses. So if anyone's familiar with a greenhouse, you know that you can walk in on a, a cold day and it will feel warm. You can walk in on a warm day and it will feel unbearably hot. Why, why is that happening? Well, the earth's energy, is radiation and it comes through the glass into the greenhouse and it then is re-emitted as heat as infrared heat and it's when it's re-emitted from plants and plant pots and the ground within the greenhouse it's absorbed the co2 and other gases within the greenhouse absorb that heat in a way that they can't absorb when it comes directly from the sun at a global scale we've got the earth's atmosphere And that has got things like co2 and methane within it and as heat from the heat from the sun passes straight through the earth's atmosphere warms up the earth and then it re-radiates that as heat and it's that heat that gets trapped in the atmosphere by co2 so it's a natural process and it's there's a lot of um people have got different opinions about climate change and lots of people say it's a conspiracy theory or it's it's not real or it's made made up by scientists everyone agrees i mean the greenhouse effect per se is something which everyone understands is a real scientific effect there's no controversy about that the the big controversy is about is it something to do with humans just to put a little bit more detail on that yeah we know that if we look at other planets venus is our nearest planet or second nearest planet very similar to the earth in many ways but it's got much much higher levels of co2 the temperatures on Venus are completely—you uh, couldn't exist as a human on, yeah. on Venus. It's got a kind of what, what's described as a runaway greenhouse effect, so it's, it's, it retains so much of the sun's energy that it, it's not habitable. But the concern is that the Earth—the climate's changed a lot in recent times. That's the science of it. Tim. Just, just, just give you a few facts and figures because we were going to do this, have this conversation. I thought, well, right. I've been in the steel industry for quite some time. I'll go and look at what the situation was when I started in the steel industry. And you can
0: look <laughs> at the same, same uh, as vintage, aren't we,
1: Peter? Yeah, yeah. So I, I look back through and you can get very good records of, of of atmospheric levels of CO2. They're measured in, they've been measured in the same location over many, many years. So we've got a really good historic record. I started in the industry in 1993 and the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere then was about 350 parts per million, call it ppm. Mm. Uh, and as of this year, it's about 415. So it's increased by almost 20 percent just in the time that I've worked in this industry. If we go back further, we know, and you can ask me how we know this, but we know fairly accurately what the CO2 concentration was in the atmosphere going back. A million years Mm. and and in fact more than a million years until 1950 the concentration of co2 in the atmosphere had never exceeded 300 parts per million Mm. and now we're at 415. so what's happened is it's cycled over a period of a million plus years and never got above this magic 300 level from about 1950 it's rocketed and it's going up at an increasing rate now hit 415 which is causing a lot
0: of alarm for scientists yeah yeah and people often talk about the uh, cause the industrial revolution but I guess that was kind of a lot before 1950 wasn't it? Why is there a sort of a gap between the industrial revolution and the, and the massive increase in CO2 levels if we believe that it's uh, yeah. these man-made uh, changes? Well yeah a, a lot of
1: people think that the industrial revolution was when we started to see the levels pick up but in the first instance for the first 100 years uh, of the industrial revolution the world population was a damn sight smaller than what it is now. <laughs> it was, yeah. um, It was something like a billion people, not 7 billion or 8 billion people. Yeah. Um, so, yes, we were emitting more CO2 into the atmosphere, but it wasn't really having the kind of impact that it's
0: had uh, in combination with population growth. Yeah, yeah and and I know we talked there about carbon dioxide uh, as a sort of key driver but, but greenhouse gases as I remember when they were talked about you know a decade or so ago included other things so we talked about CFCs at the time do you remember fridges we were all told to get rid of our fridges or, or dispose of them carefully because of CFCs uh, and there's people things like methane uh, there's, there's a number of other gases not just CO2 isn't it why are we obsessed with, with CO2
1: Absolutely right, Tim. The, the 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 classic greenhouse gases, and the one which is uh, is often forgotten about is water vapor. So water vapor is a greenhouse gas. Wow. CO two, methane, something called PF six, CFCs. They, they, these are are all uh, greenhouse gases, and and, and they 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 are all able to absorb that heat that's radiated back from the Earth after the sun warms the Earth, and they they have different ability to 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 capture that heat. So something like methane is much more able to capture heat than CO2. Yeah. So for every ton of methane emitted, it has a much bigger impact on global warming than a ton of CO2. Uh, the reason we're so focused about CO2 is that it's the it's the greenhouse gas which is, well, firstly, overall it has the biggest impact on global warming because mm-hmm. there's so much of it. Right. right. It's also the, the thing which is emitted when we burn fossil fuels. That, yeah, that is to say, when we burn coal or oil or natural gas, yeah, we yeah. emit CO2 primarily. Uh, and most of the human impact in terms of releasing greenhouse gases has been to release CO2. Um, having said that, we get a big emission of methane from agriculture, uh, yeah. in particular from, from uh, livestock yeah. Uh, and, and, and agricultural practices is, is, is increasing the amount of methane
0: uh, that, that human activities is accounting for. So some of, some of this is human related and some of it's not human related. Is there a, is there a sort of a common understanding of the, the scale of the human impact as opposed to others? And I know it's a kind of a difficult one because you may say, well, as you explain, methane comes from from livestock. But we've got more livestock because more people are on the planet and more people are eating meat and so forth so i know it's not an exact science but you know things like geological activity must contribute as well is there sort of a breakdown between human factors and non-human factors
1: yeah there is Tim. and and one of the questions or one of the things i hear a lot of people say is uh, we, we volcanoes emit much more co2 than, than than humans do i did a little bit of uh, research looked into that and it's it's actually very difficult to measure how much CO2 is emitted from human activity and from volcanoes. So we've got to take all of this with a pinch of salt. But the, but the best estimates of the scientists are that on average, and, and of course, if every year you have a different nature of volcanic activity, and it's not just the big ones you see, it's also beneath the oceans, there are yeah. lots of volcanic yeah. vents. But the general sense is that they account for about 200 million tonnes a year of CO2 into the atmosphere. And that's out of a total of about um 36 billion. So point yeah. <laughs> right. two billion out of 36 billion. Yeah. Um so it's actually a very small proportion. Uh the other thing which which releases uh greenhouse gases into the atmosphere is uh, forest fires. And that they actually are much more important, they emit much more CO2 uh, than volcanoes, potentially um five or ten times more than volcanoes, and they are natural. Uh, sometimes we set set fire to the forest because we want to clear it yeah people will remember the scenes of the amazon basin where where we do slash and burn
0: mm.
1: but but forest fires have always been with us they're, they're a very natural feature and they themselves account for a lot of co2 into the atmosphere yeah. but 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 what one thing which the scientists are agreed on is that if you look at these historic levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere but with a particular focus on co2 we know there's been huge volcanic activity in some years yes um, but you but but you can it's very very difficult to see the impact of a big volcanic eruption on right. the c o two trace. Mm. What you can see is the c o two trace goes up with human activity and and, and, and the emission of of c o two from fossil fuel burning,
0: yeah. Yeah, and I know, you know, later in the series, we're going to go much in much more detail about our own industry and things we're doing to reduce our impacts, future technologies and so on and so forth. But, you know, we should we shouldn't we shouldn't gaze into our own navels too much too early because, you know, the the human impact on greenhouse gases and CO2, especially, it's not just from energy intensive industries. You know, we've mentioned farming already and livestock and the the big impact that has because it produces methane, which is uh, more harmful than CO2 even. But there's a whole host of other stuff isn't there and it's it's very difficult as individuals to understand what we can have on impact we can have on that but you know I, I it was only recently I, I was led to understand about the impact of servers computer servers and the energy they use and the impact that has on the environment people don't think maybe when they're using their mobile phones there's a huge range of industries that have a big effect and those numbers are you know, when you said two hundred million tons of CO two from from volcanoes, I'm like, that is a lot. You know, that, and then but then you put it into the context of global emissions in in terms of billions of tons, you quickly understand the human race is having a pretty devastating impact, isn't it?
1: It is. Well, there is some good news too. And the good news story is that uh, we, we 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 know that this is happening. The world is waking up to the fact that there's a problem. And there's something that we can do about it and that's really what what, what the focus is and, and there's even better news for us as a steel industry because we often think of it as being something which is um, only a negative because the steel industry emits a lot of co2 but i think you'll come to talk to other people in the company about this but 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 there's a lot we can do to actually have a net positive impact in mm. terms of the products that we make and and things like that,
0: but we won't stray into that that that, that yeah, now. Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. But it's a good point you raise there, and something I wasn't I wasn't thinking of talking to you. But this, you know, lots of people say, well, CO two is a good thing because plants and trees it's the it's the, the, the it's where they get their energy. It's their lifeblood of plants and trees. You know, surely we should be seeing a blossoming of the rainforest and a, and and a vegetation across the world because we're producing CO two. Surely that's a good thing. Can I can't consume it all, or is it just, or is it just too much, Pete? Is it overwhelming? Yeah, I mean
1: the the world is a natural system um, and when the world warms up and when CO2 concentrations uh, increase there are lots and lots of interactions and lots and lots of different consequences which result from that. One example is we know that as the world warms there's lots and lots of areas of the world which are covered in what we call permafrost where there's a lot of methane and CO2 trapped into peat And, and the soil, and that's released. We know that the sea can rise, but we also know as the sea warms, it becomes more able to absorb CO two. But then that causes the sea to become a little bit acidic. We right. also know that, that that plants and forests can can that they will prosper when there's more CO two. The problem we've got, uh, Tim, is that we we have less and less of the earth covered by forests than ever yeah. before because we've yeah. we, we've we've cut them down and we continue to cut them down in order to develop those forests for Mm. other uses, be it for urbanization or to put it to agricultural use. So even though absolutely it's the case that the plants can prosper more when the CO2 emission levels are are higher, unfortunately there's less space for those (laughs) plants to prosper. The (laughs) net effect is that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has been going up year on year on year on year. You mentioned before, Tim, that the, um, you mentioned New Year's Day being the warmest on record. The other thing that we found out on New Year's Day was that 2021 became, I think I'm right to say, the seventh out of seven. The, the, the last seven years, including two, 2021, are the seven warmest years globally
0: on record. Yeah, and I think it was the fifth, wasn't it? I think the last year was the fifth of the seventh, but yeah. So, so, so we, we, uh, this, this, this is happening. This is happening. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and sadly, uh, Pete, you know, this all comes down to human activity. And we talked about before about the, the explosion in the population and, and you know, post uh, industrialization and, um, you know, the, the, the population soaring to like seven billion people, more than seven billion people on the planet. And, and, and of those people, we're all consuming more and, and, you know, developing countries are starting to use more fridges and consumer appliances and, and cars and so on and so forth. You know, some would argue we're a much more throwaway society. You know, certainly when I was a a kid, my my parents didn't throw away anything. They reused uh, everything because they didn't have the money to throw it away and rebuy stuff. And, you know, as as the world becomes wealthier, it's terribly wasteful society, uh, arguably, isn't it? But if you look at all those things that are involved in consumerism, it's houses, it's cars, it's fridges, it's cookers, it's microwaves, it's, you know, new buildings and so forth. It, from our own industry perspective, you know they are all using well, energy-intensive. They're all using steel, or they're using concrete, or they're using plastics, all of which have carbon in them. So, if carbon is such a bad thing, and society is, you know, in a best-case scenario, stabilizing, uh, if not if not growing exponentially, some some predicting another two billion people on the planet uh, by the t- by twenty fifty. But if carbon is such a problem. Is there any way that society can do without it completely? Society can't do without carbon. Society can
1: pro- prosper without emitting lots of CO2. And I think that's the challenge. I think you're absolutely right to make the connection with population, but that's a controversial area, which let's we, we won't even go into that. Suffice to say that the more people are consuming stuff, the more stuff gets consumed. Yeah. And in order to make things, you emit CO2 uh, to make the goods that you've described. The reasons to be encouraged, I think, are that we look at the UK where there is a a fairly stable population and we've we've been able to reduce our CO2 emissions as a country. In fact, the whole of Europe has really now been on a a path where it's been reducing its CO2 emissions, even though its population has has not shrunk. And that's because we're finding increasingly ways that we can decouple CO2 emissions from prosperity and economic growth and, and one thing and another. The big challenge, even when the world population does start to find an equilibrium and stabilize, be it 9 billion or 10 billion, what we have to do is ensure that that six or seven or eight billion people who are currently living in countries with far lower GDPs than, than our own, that they don't follow the same model of development yeah. that the UK has followed, which is a very, very wasteful and consumption heavy model. And a lot of uh, politicians now are suggesting that what we should be focusing on rather than trying to decarbonize mature economies like the UK mm. is focus on how can we how can people develop in developing countries mm. in a way where people have prosperity and a, as good a, a quality of life as, as we currently enjoy. Yeah. But in a way, which is less throwaway and, and less CO2 intensive. But there's lots and lots of reason to believe that we can do that if we move on and we, we, i think you'll talk with other people about different technological solutions tim but, but yep. one of the things which i think is um, lots of technology needs to be developed and and it's going to take time but one thing which gives us great hope uh, of course is the, the the ability to generate electricity from renewable sources yes so so in the past again when when you and i started in the industry tim most of the uk's Electricity generation was was in coal-fired power stations, and that which wasn't coal-fired was natural gas-fired, a little yeah. bit of nuclear. Mm. And what we're seeing now is there've been some days in the last uh, year where there's been no coal-fired power generation contributing to the UK grid mix. On some days, in fact, it's there's been weeks where it's been like that. Yeah, well, it didn't even seem possible um, no. thirty years ago. So we've now got a situation where we can generate lots and lots of our electricity without emitting. Any CO two into the atmosphere, so that's that's a big positive. Yeah, and the other big positive is that we're increasingly realising as a society that we've based, we've built up our economies on fossil fuels. We talked about the Industrial Revolution before we 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 fed furnaces, blast furnaces, um, with with coal because yep. we had coal in South Wales, in Yorkshire, in 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 Lincolnshire. So we find coal to feed this industrial revolution. What we now realising is we can do all the same things we used to do with coal with hydrogen. It's just that hydrogen is a bit more dangerous, and 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 it's not something that you can dig up readily uh, as a solid material from below the ground. But what we're increasingly looking at doing is using hydrogen to heat, to smelt iron ore, and to do all of the other things that we've we've used coal and other fossil fuels for over the years. And the beauty of that is that when you use hydrogen in this way. You don't produce CO2, you produce water. Yeah. So that really, coupled with renewable energy, and you can use renewable energy to produce hydrogen from water, mm-hmm. really provides us with a very clear model about how the world can continue to have a high quality of life, but
0: without emitting lots of CO2. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, it certainly will be the topic of uh, a future podcast. And people will be you know, listening to this and saying, oh, it's all we're all saying, that's about hydrogen, but we haven't got enough renewable energy to to split water into hydrogen and oxygen so therefore we're going to have to have i think is it uh, called blue hydrogen where you where you create it from from methane um but, but of course these things are bridges aren't they as technology yeah. ad- advances and you know you're right to go back to, to when you and i were younger you know the price of gas was very low electricity was extremely high and everything was being done to 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 stop using electricity you know you lose you lose so much energy and changing from one energy source to another don't you? So um, the whole dynamics have changed but you know you talk about renewable there in terms of solar energy, wind power but people say well that's all very well you know but as soon as the wind stops blowing you're struggling because you've got no storage and that's there's a number of issues aren't there in in creating these new energy sources but I guess you know your positivity comes through all the time Pete which, which will be hugely encouraging for listeners because I guess you know, for me, it wasn't that long ago when we were talking about a hole in the ozone layer as being the, the, the big crisis at the time. And I'm not saying we necessarily solved it, but as far as I'm you know, hearing, no one's talking about a hole in the ozone layer anymore because, you know, we've got rid of CFCs. We've done all the actions that are helping to improve that. So, you know, you must have very, very strong faith in, in science and technology and human nature to overcome the biggest issues. I think that the example you've used about the
1: hole in the ozone layer is a classic example of where... The whole world came together and found a solution the issue there was that we were protected from the ultraviolet radiation from the sun which can cause problems like sunburn and worse skin cancer and all sorts of other impacts we were we were protected by that or we are protected by that by a layer of ozone in the upper atmosphere and that was being diminished by emissions of a certain pollutant mainly cfc's and the world came together i think it was called the montreal protocol in the 1980s uh uh, where it was agreed to phase it out phase out cfcs it still affects us now tim we still have situations where the replacements for cfcs are still in use in some parts of our processes or 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 things that we buy Uh, and, and we we've been in a process of phase out for many 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 years but the result of all of that has been hugely successful And the ozone layer is recovered to a great extent. And that huge concern which existed in the 1980s and 1990s, we can put it on the back burner and say, we've kind of solved that. And that kind of, um, that serves as a template for how we can solve this bigger problem of of global warming. But but I I am optimistic because I can see see huge changes have already been made, for example, in the UK, towards finding a solution and clearly people have woken up to the fact we need to act and that that that's the first the, the, before you can start to fix a problem you've got to accept the problem
0: yeah yeah and,
1: and that is something which i'm proud that we as a company did do we did it 15 years ago mm. we said there's a lot of people argue is it happening is it not happening is it human human activity is it volcanoes is it is it just yeah. you know it was it going to be an ice age anyway will it cancel And and the general view of of our then chief executive was, it doesn't even matter. The fact is, it's going to affect us in one way or another. Let's just accept it and let's try to fix it. And we've been very, very active since then uh, as a company.
0: But these are massive, massive issues, aren't they? Even for a even for a single company like ours, the, the 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 challenge of changing fundamental technologies is absolutely enormous. And let alone for a whole country or a whole region of or for, or for the world. And we saw some of that maybe in COP26, that difficulties of coming to a sort of common consensus about the step forward and the pace of change. And what are we trying to do as a society around the world? And why why are people got different targets? And and yeah. and where do we sit within that? Okay Tim, so so
1: what the world agreed a few years ago was something called the Paris Agreement and that said what, what we need to try to do is to ensure that the world doesn't heat up by more than two degrees C compared to the, the level before the industrial revolution um, and a lot of calculations were done to work out how much we would have to limit our emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in order for that to be achieved a couple of years later about 2018 um some scientists said the difference between limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial revolution compared to two degrees it wouldn't cost that much more for us to to, to have that increased target yeah but the but the level of damage we could avert would be huge so what we're now targeting is a 1.5 degree we try to try to ensure that we don't Uh, heat the earth by more than 1.5 degrees compared to pre-industrial revolution levels. There is a general view that in order for that to happen, we need to achieve this this point of net zero emissions. So what do we mean by net zero? It means that there can still be some emissions of CO2, but we have to do things which compensate for those emissions, for example, plant more forests. uh, So that in balance, we've got no additional CO2 uh, being emitted in net terms uh, to the atmosphere by 2050 so that's kind of the global consensus there's also an acceptance that that different countries will have to uh, do that at a different pace because they've
0: got different circumstances they're on different parts of the development curve which is difficult for people to understand isn't it Pete because you say look whether whether if we emit CO2 in the UK it's it's, going to travel around the world as part of the atmosphere so you know some people are saying well what you know unless the big emitters do something is there any point in the rest of us doing something yeah well there's a lot of talk about the fact that the chinese governments and the russian governments um
1: weren't and even some said the american government weren't really signed up to cop 26 well that's not quite true they all were they all were mm. they they do understand it's it's a big deal by the way one fact which is not very well understood is that the very first agreement on reducing co2 emissions was was reached between Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan in about 1985 they saw it back then Um, the Russians and the Americans understood this many many years ago they did send big delegations to COP26 Um, the American and the Chinese government made a big bilateral agreement just before COP26 where they agreed to to have some massive reductions of CO2 so I think that I don't think we're in a situation where some countries like the UK will destroy their economies uh, and no. it will not be in vain because other countries will, will, will have capitalised and continued doing what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, and we've, we've seen some very, very substantial commitments by, by, by other countries. Let me give you a good example. India. India was one of the countries which, which was somewhat criticised at COP26 for wanting to keep hold of some language which allowed it to continue to use coal. Yeah. Well, Why shouldn't it be allowed to use coal? Because the UK used coal for uh, since the early 1800s or late 1700s and benefited massively in terms of developing the society, economic development and becoming a world power as a result of it. What right have we got to say to a country like India, no, you've got lots of coal reserves, you can't use them. So what we need to do as as a world is to agree what is fair. And that takes a lot of time. That's why European countries are trying to go a little bit further. Uh, than some of the developing countries the other thing to say tim is that when you emit co2 if we emitted co2 100 years ago or last year it's still a ton of co2 that's being emitted into the atmosphere yeah and one thing which i find fascinating is if you look at cumulative emissions by all countries it was not that long ago that the uk was knocked off the top spot of being the biggest cumulative emitter in the whole world wow. so if you take the whole of history the UK was in the lead until I, I don't know when, but but it wasn't that long ago. And Europe and America are still by far and away. They've accounted for more tons of CO2 in the atmosphere in cumulative terms than any other part of the world. So yeah. when we say, well, China's emitting lots and lots of CO2, we've emitted a lot more than China has.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and I sorry. guess it's one of those things, isn't it? You know, a, a bit like in society, you say, well, you know, you might not be able to do much as an individual, but you can do something. And and similarly, you know, you're saying the developed nations should be leading the way and setting the example and doing doing the most, and and uh, it, it, hoping that others will follow follow suit from a global perspective. Just one thing, just to pick you up on a point there. So you said the target of trying to reduce the increase in global temperature by one and a half degrees C from pre-industrialization levels. You know, how far down that road are we already? You know, how much warmer are we than pre-industrialization levels? How much? How much left have we got to play with?
1: Not not a lot, Tim. And I don't know. I don't know it, it is the truth, but but we're so, something like one degree warmer already. Yeah. And by the way, that just a lot of people mostly jokingly say, oh, you know, what's the difference between uh, what what does a one degree rise mean or a two-degree rise? It's nothing, you know. Yesterday it was five degrees, today it's ten. That's a five degrees rise. It just feels a bit milder. This is an average, of course. And and in order to get an average for the world, that means some massive extremes uh, at both ends of the scale. And of course, some places in the world might get cooler. Just because some parts of the world get cooler doesn't mean that that, that overall the world isn't warming. It just means that energy is moving around in in different ways. But but the general view is that a two degree rise will cause catastrophic impacts. and, And anything more than that will be something we just don't want to think about. We, we haven't got much um, room left, uh, Tim. We've got to continue on this journey to net zero. But the other thing I, I think which is maybe linked to the optimism I, I expressed earlier, taking early action doesn't necessarily put a country at a disadvantage. In fact, it might be quite the opposite. It might put us at an advantage. Why is that? Just to just take ourselves, We've developed technology now in the U.K, uh, which has made offshore wind generation really, really competitive. It's a very, very economically competitive way of generating electricity. We've not got all of the benefit from that as a country. A lot of the supply chains are still, unfortunately, in other European countries. But nevertheless, the countries which have innovated early in these green technologies have now got an opportunity
0: to sell them to the rest of the world. It is a topic we'll be picking up later in the series because the demand uh, you know in in the last literally two or three years, the demand for suppliers who can prove their green credentials and and, and the potential you know added value of the products and services they offer is just increasing every day. You know, we t- I'm sure more than three or four years ago it was very rare to hear of of a of a customer of our steel industry say talk about local supply chains from an environmental perspective. But now car makers are saying, you know they want to source their materials from from on the island of the u k because they understand that. The environmental impacts of moving materials around the world. As you say things are changing drastically and and hopefully we'll be getting uh, Russell Codling on one of the podcasts to talk about you know those shifts in market demand as you're saying so it's a good point to make because sometimes people only see the negatives of you know investing in green uh, energy you know their own person the, the tariffs on their own energy bills domestic energy bills and so forth without saying maybe not even necessarily longer term but those medium term benefits of, of, of being ahead of the curve so um i know we're kind of you know going on a bit longer than we probably ought to have done pete but it's, it's fascinating stuff and you know again it's probably a topic for a future podcast but when you say that you know the drivers for this change inevitably will be governments around the world and we talked about cop 26 and the governments around the world you know as an industry you know should we be looking for the if the government wants to change its policy and have a net zero policy you know, as a private industry, we, we, should we be saying to the government, well, if you need us to change our technology and our, our modus operandi because of your policies, then you you should be funding it. Why should we be funding something that is your concern, not ours? How, yeah. how do you see that role between government and, and industry to tackle this problem? Yeah, good question, Tim. The, the, j- just, let me go back one stage and just say what the UK government
1: has has signed up to. So the government in both the UK and Wales, uh, the, the Welsh government have both signed up in legislation to net zero by 2050. The UK government has got an advisory body called the Committee on Climate Change. And that made a recommendation every year or so it makes recommendations to the government about what it should do. And last year it made a recommendation about what it needs to do, the next steps in its uh, approach to climate change. And it recommended that by 2035, all ore based steel production should achieve near zero emissions. Mm-hmm. So we're an ore based steel producer. So we are now faced with UK government action, which requires us to get to near zero by 2035. That's only 13 years away. Yeah. We know that even though there are lots of benefits, both in terms of selling um, premium products to customers who want a green supply, there are lots of benefits from moving early, but we do know it's very, very costly to to, to decarbonize. So the same kind of pattern has emerged in other countries around around Europe in particular, Spain, Germany, the Netherlands, uh, Sweden. There's a general consensus formed now that that kind of early uh, transition can only happen with government support. Yeah. And what we're seeing is, is governments in, in the countries I mentioned um, actually committing to very, very substantial public funds for this transition that steelmakers need to make. Let me just quickly drill down on that and, and explain what, why that seems to me to be fair steel the world consumes about 1.6 1.7 billion tons of steel every year yeah and that's made primarily in china which accounts for more than 50 percent of global steel production we know and we've seen it ourselves in our own business that we are vulnerable to cheap imports being dumped on our shores and that the reason for that is that steel is traded internationally It, it travels very easily the cost of transporting it is very small as a proportion of the total cost of producing it, uh, which isn't the case for lots of, for, for, for all products. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, lime, like we make at Schapfel, that doesn't travel so far. Mm. We know, therefore, that if we as a steel company bear lots and lots of costs to decarbonise our business and those costs aren't borne by all of our competitors, it puts us at such a competitive disadvantage that it could put us out of business very quickly. Yeah. So what we're saying to governments, it comes back to your question, Tim, is fine, we accept the need for early action, but it can't be at the expense of us becoming uncompetitive mm. and being um, a, 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 and even not having a business. And what we've had to explain to governments, and I, I think it's very well understood by governments, is that you know, if they were to do that, that would be very counterproductive because the world would still want to use 1.6 or 1.7 billion tons of steel every year. Yep. It would just have to be made in other places. And where would it be made? Which places will pick up the slack? It'd be places where there isn't the same level of ambition and and, and, and target. So, yeah, we think that the governments, uh, well, we believe that our governments, the Welsh government, the UK government, need to be part of that transition.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's a big challenge for them and uh, and I guess one of the biggest issues on our our own agenda in terms of political relations. Listen, Pete, I think we're kind of almost at the end. I'm going to quickly sum up because it's a massive topic. And as you know, we've got a number of episodes planned to cover some more detail. But uh, listen, as we wrap up uh, the podcast today, we've learnt uh, much more about the root of the problem with carbon, where it comes from. uh, And maybe that points towards some of the opportunities that might lie for society and for steel. Uh, Hopefully we're also a bit clear about the targets that are being set globally and across the different countries in the world and for businesses and what those reductions mean and the implications on governments and for businesses like ours for enshrining them, Uh, you know, and even not in law in companies' promises to their stakeholders, which is uh, becoming so powerful in terms of uh, brand and reputation. In future editions of this podcast, we're going to be looking more specifically at steel. We've talked a bit about it today, but certainly more in, in future, future episodes. Not only the current technologies we've got, the developments we've been making uh, and appreciating the role of steel in society. But, uh, you know, someone once said uh, in the company, Pete, you might recognise this quote, if we didn't already have steel, we'd need to invent it for a green economy. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, we've talked about some of the applications in which steel is essential to become green. So um but Pete my thanks to you for guiding us through some of those basics today and a great conversation I'm sure we'll all have learned something from it I've got a feeling we might be talking to you in some future episodes as well thanks it's been really enjoyable thank you so thanks for listening to this episode of Steelcast next time we'll be finding out how steel is as much part of the solution to climate change as it might be part of the problem we'll be talking about current steel making technologies and just how many improvements have already been made in reducing energy and material consumption We'll also be looking at the role of steel as a low energy material in supply chains such as construction and automotive. If you want to keep up to date with the latest happenings in Tartar Steel UK and in this series on our journey towards decarbonisation, why not subscribe through Podbean, Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us today and we'll speak to you next time.